Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, Brendan here with Mark, the Vet Gurus. Mark, I need to tell you about examinations. Not that long ago, my eldest Jane, um, hopefully she's not listening, um, was sitting her one of her final lot of exams for her law degree, Mark. And um, well, I'm much. Was, I'm, I'm really happy about the direction this has taken because when you said examinations, I thought that you had a prostate problem or something. Well, if you want to go down that track, um, the good news is my GP has stopped doing the prostate um, finger up the bum exam uh, and he just does the yearly PSA, the antigen um, test. Um, He did both for a few years there, so I don't know whether he got some sort of perverse pleasure out of um, the humiliation he inflicted on me, but um, no, the last couple of years he's just run the PSA. So that's the good news, Mark. Um, But getting back to Jane's examinations, and I think it's part to do with this the the um this this is a episode we've sort of pre-recorded and it's during the COVID nineteen outbreak. So I'm not quite sure when this one will go to air, Mark. Um, hopefully not too far in the future. <laughs> and um, her exa- she's sitting in the exam at the moment, and she hopped in a car and went down the street, and she's met the boyfriend and has gone out for dinner. Now, how does that work? Well, it's an open book exam, which they often have for the law um, faculty. And this exam, she has the questions and um, three or four, a couple of short answer questions and and a couple of long answer questions, you know, um, essay style questions on particular legal matters. Um, And she has two days to finish the exam, Mark. How does that work? That's not an exam. That's a bloody assignment two days um so she does a little bit of work she, she and then she sits on her phone and texts a few people and then she writes another paragraph or two and then she heads down the street for dinner <laughs> i wish our exams were like that when we were youngsters mark oh my goodness that's uh, just so um relaxing so, bizarre <laughs> yes Bizarre, yes. Um, Whereas Sophie, Sophie's exam was sort of a little bit the opposite. Um, one of her friends, Sophie's friends, um, was um, a little bit stressed out because they had a two-hour exam um, with something like 40 multiple-choice questions. Um, and traditionally it's a one-hour exam, but um, considering what's happening at the moment with all the virus issues and examination techniques um, online, um, they extended it to two hours and Sophie was not too happy about it because she has, her exam is two hours to do 60 multiple choice and six short answer questions as well. Um, And she can't go backwards with any of the multiple choice questions because they're worried that people will, you know, cheat or whatever with that. So, um, you just have to, if you come across a particularly troublesome question, multiple choice one, you just have to Let guess it, it your best and um, move on, yes. So, yeah, so 
But yeah, that's an interesting method of doing the examination. Yeah, you're right. It's an assignment, um, isn't it? Um, spending two days to do a two-hour examination. So it'll be interesting how they correct them and differentiate the results um, from people who have just sort of yeah spent two days doing nothing or two days chatting between the other colleagues and students and um, working out their answer. But um, it's a strange world we live in, Mark, isn't it? It's all new and different and we just don't keep up. <laughs> I always thought that we would, that, you know, I sort of, in a way, in, with a bit of arrogance, I prided myself on the fact that I did try to keep up with, you know, new techniques and new information technology. And of course, I don't do it nearly as well as you, but I tried to keep up, but the tidal wave of uh, of improvements left me behind beached like some poor sad skinny whale um, not knowing you know what the next bit of strange thing that will happen to the human race is I'm I turning just, into an old curmudgeon you are I just wish you'd keep up with fashion Mark that's all <laughs> Um, you just need to work on that a little bit. Um, I'm jumping into my first news story, Mark. It's about Switzerland and it's about guinea pigs. And this is a great little story, wasn't it, Mark? Um, it is illegal to own just one guinea pig in Switzerland. So they've passed a law, and I think it's been around for a while, where um, you need to have more than one if you have a guinea pig, which we tell our clients all the time, and I'm sure you do with your clients as well, Mark, um, because they are very social species. And as a result, um, there's lots of matchmaking going on, and um, I think I've spoken before about um, the big welfare organisation that we do work for Um with rabbits and um, that they do bunny dates um, where if you have a rabbit that needs a friend, you can drop your bunny off to them, um, which is called Rabbit Run Orphanage here in Melbourne, and they will bond that rabbit with another rabbit. And um, they have something like 200 rabbits at any one time that they're trying to rehome. They're all rescue animals and um, there's a high chance that they'll find a little mate Brendan, the bunny Brendan, date. Are you, yes. are you are you a party to Lagomorph Tinder? Swipe up, down, left, right. I don't know which way it is, Mark, these days, but yes. Um, and I do have, and we do work with another, um, a guinea pig um, rescue organisation. Lindley is the woman who runs that, and she does the same for guinea pigs. So we do the same with guinea pig owners, where we recommend that they have more than one guinea pig. So it's a good thing, and well done to you people in Switzerland for having that law. Um, do you think it's overkill, Mark, or do you think it's a good thing to do? Well, I feel ambivalent about it, Brendan, because it is doubtless a good thing to do, but I just hate that you have to have laws to make people do the right thing. I just wish people would do the right thing without being forced to, which leads me to the ambivalence of our second article, like I'm in a very ambivalent mood today. Um, the, um the My article uh, talks about... Um, it's a, It's really. Uh, I'm very excited by um, the science behind it. So, um, the article talks about uh, developing heat heat resistant corals um, that will help to fight coral bleaching as the oceans boil away with global warming. Um, and the CSIRO and um, the Australian Institute of Marine Science 
um, and um, the University of Melbourne have all gotten together and they've developed this program where they introduce new... So corals have um, uh, those symbiotic uh, um, algae held within the cells, um, the zooxanthellae, and those uh, they've introduced new uh, microalgae to um, to assist the corals and and particular species of microalgae seem to uh, allow the corals to cope with hotter conditions. Um, so there's this sort of like little process where they get the coral larvae and they introduce uh, different microalgae into them, which creates the coral algal symbiosis, um, which uh, when done the right way, makes the corals more heat tolerant. Um, and I'm fascinated by the science. I'm fascinated by the symbiotic arrangement that corals have with the zooxanthellae. Um, and, um, and so, but I do worry, Brendan, with all these technologies that I think there's this sort of like false sense of security that technology will save the reef no matter how much we stuff the planet up. And so we won't have to do anything about it. We can just keep happily burning fossil fuels till the end of the earth because science will solve the problem. And I don't think that false, well, I believe it to be a false sense of security. I don't think that that's going to happen. And I worry that, um, you know, uh, depending on uh, manipulating uh, corals and allowing the existing corals to go extinct is probably a bad plan. Well, you are very cynical there, Mark. Um, don't you believe in our scientists to save the world? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right there. I think you're right. Um, but it was a pretty nifty idea, wasn't it, um, what they've done? And um, um, I didn't dig deep into that article there, Mark, have they? Is it just a small-scale little test they have done for that particular um, resistance to um, the global warming for those cor for it, the coral? It is at this stage small-scale. And, and I have – I. I've, I've, I have worries about um, how quickly the newly implanted coral larvae can be deployed in sufficient number. I'm, look, I may be completely wrong with this, Brendan, because I do know that um, when coral get to uh, the reproductive stuff, they don't do it half-baked. And on those moonlit nights... Um, in the uh, particular, you know, when the 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 full moon's up in August, um, they do tend to pour a whole bunch of gametes into the soup of the ocean and create bazillions of larvae. So, if if there is, you know, uh, I wonder how many generations it would take before they could recolonize the whole Great Barrier Reef with. Uh, heat resistant uh, coral um, and it might be something you know that exponential growth it might happen quicker than I expect but I'm pessimistic to be honest with you Brendan I think that it will be uh, a wonderful thing we'll see in very isolated locations and the rest of it's going to be bone white and dead well we might revisit this little article in five years Mark 
um, in episode, what, it'll be like 1,500 or something <laughs> like that. Um, we'll see how we're going then. Um, I think we're going to jump in. We're going to be extremely punchy as usual, Mark, and we're covering part two of our castration of small mammals. And I think we were talking off air before we started recording it that we should do a little series on castration of not only small mammals but some of the other species out there so look out for that in the future so last episode part one we covered rabbit castration and guinea pig castration so this week we'll cover a couple of the other more commonly seen small mammals and we won't cover some of the ones that are commonly seen for castration in other areas of the world mark because we physically do not see them here mark or i certainly have and done any castrations of them and they're the species like chinchillas and gerbils and hamsters and hedgehogs and those sorts of other small mammals um have you had any experience with dealing with those species mark not at all well in that case we'll move on and we'll talk about (laughs) castration techniques for rats and meeses and we did, I did do a mouse castration about three weeks ago, Mark. Um, it's pretty rare that we'll be presented with a mouse for de-sexing, whether it is male or female, but I did do a, a little boy mouse not long ago at all. And yes, um, those testes are quite small, um, and that's the challenge with castrating a mouse mark it's having a scalpel that is small enough to make an incision that's not too big for the mouse have you done any mouse castrations mice castrations it's been quite a while but yes we did go through a little patch with one client where we did quite a few and um and so i am familiar with um with the uh uh, the use of um, illumination and magnification to make the procedure doable so what's your technique for those, Mark? Um, one incision, two incisions, um, open, closed castration? Um, one incision, uh, closed castration. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm, th- 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 is this, this is one of those. So what, um, what do you use to uh, tie the, the, um, the cords off with, Brendan? 5-0, absorbable. <laughs> um, have you ever- I, did, I did this lump one, I did three or four weeks ago, uh, which which could be six months ago or two years ago, depending on when this goes to air, Mark, um, was a, I did um, an open castration, uh, ah. two incisions, one on each side. <laughs> and Is then that identified, your technique? Well, it was three weeks ago. <laughs> and it was, um, because I can't remember the last time before then, it was probably a year or so, um, and it was um, an open castration and, yeah, identified the um, inguinal ring or equivalent and managed to clamp off that as well. Uh, well but it was quite fiddly, quite fiddly. Um, the, rest of the, the rest of the process was probably similar to what you did with your closed castration and single incision in that I closed it with just a smidge Mark, of tissue glue for the skin closure. What did you use on the skin? Precisely the same, just a little. I, I, um, I've, I have this love-hate relationship with tissue cement um, because particularly with uh, cases like this, you know, the objective is to not get any, 
like in it's in between the cut edges. You want it sort of over the top and. And it is really, I find it exceptionally difficult to restrict it to that little bit of skin over the top of the incision without getting any in the incision. The manipulations you have to do, um, that I have to do, sometimes are a little bit frustrating. But tissue cement it is, Brendan. It's the same for both of us. Well, that's strange, isn't it? Um and pain relief, post-operative pain relief, um, and that's diluting down and calculating very carefully, concentrating and using a calculator um, to work out the appropriate volume of pain relief to go home on. And I send the little mouse home on Meloxicam. Is that what you do, Mark? I do use Meloxicam, um, but I also, when they're um, in rec- Recovery. I also whack them with a, a dose of um, opiate, which is your opiate of choice with um, our little uh, toothy rodent friends. My usual, Mark, methadone um, for these. Um, so nothing changes there. Um, two to five milligrams per kilo um, is what I use with virtually all of these um, little rodent species. What do you use? Precisely the same. I did for a while. I was convinced, oh, probably a decade ago, I was using a bit of butorphanol um, at relatively low doses. Um, but crikeys, I, I, I can notice the difference in the, and particularly um, in recovery when they're likely to have a go at the wound. And bloody hell, if they do have a go at the wound, it's sort of like the disaster of all disasters. Um, but um, certainly, uh, using um, a mu agonist rather than a mixed agonist antagonist seems, in my hands at least, to make those uh, to pro- provide better pain relief. Yes. So, like in part one, I, I've used that. I administer that methadone as a pre medicant, basically, um, and that's given ten minutes to half an hour or so before I induce the mouse. Um, and a little tip here, Mark, what do you use for the, do you intubate your mice? And do you, if you're not, um, what do you use for the face mask? I do not intubate the mice. And um, and generally, we've got a little um, array of, you know, commercial uh, face masks. But I know what you're like. I know <laughs> that you'll, you'll have some uh, very effective, very, very functional um, but extremely cheap alternate option. Oh, you're calling me cheap, are you, Mark? Um, well, it's something that every vet clinic has, and it is the perfect ma- perfect mask for Mises, and that is, I think it's called a, a, a burette, and it's uh, intravenous giving sets, Mark, that you attach to the bag of fluids, the little section where you see the drip going, drip, 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 that fits perfectly over the head of a mouse. And it is, one, extremely cheap, as you mentioned. Two, it's very soft. Oh, depend- some, of the, some of the giving sets that you buy are a, a stiffer sort of plastic on it, but some are very, very soft there. Particularly um, the least and- expensive ones. <laughs> no, it's actually the opposite. Um and they fit perfectly over the face and the head of the mouse, and then you just attach a an ET tube adapter of appropriate size into the um, 
hose hose in um, that's sitting out on the the um, the other side of it, um, that's and it works gem. perfectly. That's a gem, Brendan. That's one of the reasons I keep listening <laughs> to you. Those little gems you come up with. Dude, one of the other questions I had for you was um, hemoclips. What what is your take on hemoclips uh, in rodent castrations? Well, I think we've have gone over this before, whether it was last episode or or previously. Um, I'm a little bit averse to using the mark because I did have a patient at one stage, at least one patient that developed a bit of a scrotal abscess, and I did blame it on the the vascular clip or the Liger clip as the brand I use, rather than the Hemoclip brand. Um, it's just what I have. Um, so. I tend not to leave little bits of metal um, in the castration surgical field. Um, do you use them? I have. I um, don't invariably use them, but I definitely have used them. And um, and I, I I think my my thoughts are they definitely speed the process up because you know obviously you're not uh, absolutely, but um, it's a you know swings and roundabouts um, that you. I, I agree with you. I think the likelihood of having a complication, either um, discomfort because little metal things are pressing on a very delicate part of the anatomy um, or um, because they trap um, some bacteria in there and become a focus for them, um, I probably more frequently use uh, synthetic absorbable sutures of very fine spiderweb sort of um, number of O's. Yes. Good. Well, there's mouse castration. Let's jump on to a couple of others. Ferrets, Mark, how do you castrate a ferret? Any particular tips or tricks? Do we do anything different than the other species we've gone through already? Well, I've, I've been trying to think of the, the unique things I do with each of these species, but um, for ferrets, it's, um, it's, it's pretty much just sort of standard castration. It's just get in there and, and do the things you would, you know, often do with a, um, a com- small companion animal of the same size. I do one midline incision for the mark and, and um, milk each testy into the um, incision. So I only have one incision there. But apart from that, it's an open castration like I would do in, I suppose, a, a, a small cat or a, or a tiny dog. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, but I do do the one incision and pain relief, and I do use the tissue glue for the closure. I presume you do the same for the skin closure. Do you, with um, ferrets in particular, I find um, that I uh, I always make trouble if I try and put sutures in their skin. First of all, um, placing the sutures because of the nature of ferret skin is really hard, and getting the tension um, is difficult. So yes, tissue cement it is all down the line. Or if we got if we just happened to have a bad day and we made a big incision, or I made a big incision, I'd try and do intradermal um, sutures on the mark. Yeah, I certainly don't want to try and leave anything sticking out there. Um, the next one I want to chat about is one that you haven't had too much experience with, and that's sugar gliders, Mark. Um, you don't see too many sugar gliders up there, do you? I've, well, I do see them, but... Um, as far as castration? When I'm out at night trying to photograph owls. Yes. But I, I, I have never seen, um, you know, a, a, I know there's a number of... Um, it's, it's a really interesting thing because they're 
you know, beautiful animals from our um, our bush, but they're much more commonly kept as pets. I saw a beautiful bit of footage the other day of a a uh, um, you know a captive bred albino one jumping onto someone's hand, and um, um, and while there are people who hold them uh, as pets near us, they um, we certainly don't do the surgery on those animals. I've never done one, Brendan. Ah, okay. Well, we do a few. Um, it's not a very common. Um, surgery but we certainly do a few of them every year and my technique for doing the mark is to do a scrotal ablation um, because we have that peduncular we have that, those testes there swinging in the wind there and um, if we do an, a, a castration where we're just incising into the scrotal sac there you're left with this pretty Ugly looking scrotal sack that's just um, looking a bit sad, Mark. It's a sad sack um, sitting there after the castration. So I much prefer it's very, it makes much neater surgery and I think less chance of that sugar glider um, self traumatizing because sugar gliders are, gee, they're notorious, aren't they, Mark, for, for self traumatizing um, all sorts of things, um, and not just surgical wounds, but just deciding to repent of themselves um so i do a, a scrotal ablation where i um, um do a circumferential um incision around the base of that scrotal that pendulous scrotum there and um very carefully um, with a bit of magnification dissect out um, and um, ligate the stalk um, usually just with one suture, um, very fine suture again, probably four zero or five zero or naught or ought, depending on where you are in the world, the pronunciation. And um, then the tiniest little bleb of tissue glue is all you then need to close that um, wound mark. Um, which reminds me, one one thing that um, we didn't talk about is tattooing, Mark. Do you tattoo all your desexins? No. Why not? <laughs> um they they because it hurts um and because um i did i did a bit of a survey brendan when we did tattoo to the the desexing so we tattoo them in the ear do you is that the way um the location you yes um we did uh quite like quite a big survey i should publish it um it was ran to like at least several hundred um and the, there was a statistically significant um, uh, um, development of um, oral hematoma in the tattooed ear in the like years after the dog was desexed. So we gave it away. We don't do it. We never stick ink under the skin. I wouldn't do it to myself. I wouldn't do it to the apple. <laughs> That's interesting. We're the opposite, Mark. Um, we tattoo everything, including mice. <laughs> you Melbourneites. We have a very small um, tattoo gun with the little circle, believe it or not. Um, I don't tattoo. believe it. I think you're taking we do. this. No, we're not. I'll send you a picture of it next time I'm in um, at work, Mark. Um, so we tattoo everything. The reason why I think it's a visual indicator of the animals being desexed, and um, I've lost count of how many animals, regardless of what species we're talking about, that um, it's a pain in the backside trying to work out whether the animal has been desexed. 
Um, and I'm not just talking about castrations. I'm talking about the, the girls as well, Mark. So that's why I like to have them tattooed. Um, my technique for tattooing all of these animals, including dogs and cats, is when the animal is induced, um, we place Emla cream on the ear. Um, and we think that has a, a great um, effect as far as um, desensitising that ear for when we do use the tattoo. So, you know, I wouldn't tattoo any animal without putting some local anaesthetic cream on there um, first. And we're very gentle um, with the tattooing. You know, you, you, I, I think veterinarians these days, um, students are still taught at a very young age um, when they're at the vet school to to really crunch the ear, don't they, um, and, 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 and feel that crunch of the tattoo gun going through not just the skin but the cartilage as well. Um, and I prefer to do the opposite. We're just trying to um, make some little pinprick incisions with the tattoo gun needles into the skin and not right through the cartilage. Um, I think that's a bad thing to do. I think you're right. Tell me, while you mentioned the Emla, which um, an excellent um, an excellent tip for the tattooing technique. Um, do you use local anaesthetic on any of the um, any of the the um, you know the the cords once they're cut? The castrations. Yes. Um, so um, so you talk. Um, so I suppose there's two parts to that. Um, there's, there's techniques that have been published um, for desexing some of these small mammals where you inject um, local anaesthetic into the testis, testi um, and to, to provide some um, local analgesia before you do the actual surgery. So there's that um, potential technique. And the other one I think is what you're getting at is the, sort of the splash Yes. analgesic technique where you're just splashing some local anaesthetic um, into the wound um, after you've performed the desexing. Um, so my answer to both of those is no, I don't, and I have used them at certain times, but as a routine, I do not. Um, do you? Um, no, I don't. I, I reckon that um, the removal of uh, local anaesthetic in that, you know, as the local anaesthetic wears off, um, I think it highlights to a recovering animal the sensations um, almost by contrast. They don't have them while the local anaesthetic's there, but then they're drawn to them. And I think it makes it a little bit, and, and that sort of tingly partial recovery stage, I think, draws uh, the attention of many of our small um, mammals. I am desperately keen, like you, to maximise analgesia, but this is one spot that I think uh, more damage is done than good. Interesting. Interesting thought. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but um, yes. Um, and, I'm, and, and I do know veterinarians, exotic veterinarians, who do routinely use the splash analgesia technique or even the injectable, um, almost like a ring block sometimes around the, around the base of the... Um, um, scrotal region there, Mark. Um, but yeah, it's not not something that I personally personally do. Um, any other final thoughts about some of these um, castration techniques, Mark, for the species we have covered? Anything else we've missed, mate? I think my just final take home is that um, we should do more of them. That um, uh, the life of our uh, small exotic mammals, um, the males amongst them is better when they are separated from their testicles and we should do it more often. 
And my only my final thought, Mark, is that you, perhaps you should start thinking of tattooing a few more of these. Um, and um, <laughs> well, look, just one, I was going to say, no. <laughs> maybe, no, no, because I I fully accept your. Um, you know, I've had the same experience um, fishing around trying to decide whether a particular animal, male or female, has been desexed. Um, and I, I think it's a good thing to think about identifying them for sure. And I respect your delicate technique at introducing ink in the subcutaneous tissue. But um, we microchip them. When we dissect them, we stick a microchip in and um, make sure that that information is stored on the the, um, the database. So you should, when you're what having... If, what if it is this? So, it, I mean, in, in most states and countries, it's compulsory to microchip dogs and cats, but what if it's a species that isn't um, compulsory yeah. microchip? Yes, um, yes. Do you still put it in every... It, well, uh, and... What if the client doesn't want to pay for that microchip? Ah, uh, we just do, a do little, it anyway. Yeah, we sort of include it in the. It's sort of a, a a done thing. We have to put the microchip in for those exact reasons. Very interesting, Mark. Well, my final fi- final note is one of my vet nurses has a um, desexing tattoo in her ear um, <laughs> after she and she has been desexed. I think um, so. She ended up tattooing herself. Um, or actually getting a tattoo artist to do it, but she's got the spay um, symbol in her ear. Um, and I don't know whether they used Emla um, when she had that done, Mark. With that, we'll leave that thought with you and we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.